Well, it seems strange for me to be in the service at this point. Almost every Sunday, Allison and I are walking out right before the prayer to go with the kids. Um, I think as long as Allison and I have been married, about 22 years, we have been involved in some kind of children's ministry in the churches we've been in. We've lived in five different countries, and we always find, out, or find ourselves working with kids wherever we go. There was a book that George Barna wrote called Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions. And in that book, he talked about how by the age of nine, children already have their spiritual beliefs and their moral uh, beliefs in place. This kind of cemented in my heart the need for us to be teaching children, to be teaching them about God at an early age, And that we have that opportunity, but also responsibility to do that, not only in church, but obviously in our families. But another thing I love about children and working with them, and this is a little bit less spiritual, is just that kids are fun. One of the things that's fun about kids is you never know what they're going to say. You know, and over the years I've been working with kids, you hear some, some really funny things that kids say. So let me just share a couple of things with you that kids have said. Now, I can't confirm or deny if these came from this church or another church, but there was one Sunday school teacher who asked her children as they were on the way to the church service, and why is it necessary to be quiet in church? One bright little girl replied, because people are sleeping. (laughs) Obviously not today, though. There was another one where a Sunday school teacher was describing how Lot's wife had looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. Little Jason interrupted and said, my mommy looked back once while she was driving and turned into a telephone pole. (laughs) All right, just one more, and then we'll actually move on to to scripture. There was one Sunday school teacher that found her students making faces at others in the playground. So Mrs. Smith stopped to gently reprove the child. Smiling sweetly, the Sunday school teacher said, Bobby, when I was a child, I was told that if you make an ugly face, It will freeze, and you would stay like that. Bobby looked up at her face and replied, Well, Mrs. Smith, you can't say you weren't warned. (laughs) Well, this morning in the passage we're going to look at, in Luke chapter 18, there's a verse that a lot of you will be familiar with. Luke chapter 18, verse 16 says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. A lot of times in churches you'll see this verse painted on a wall, maybe in the children's section or the children's ministry, or you'll see it somewhere where you might see a picture of Jesus surrounded by children. And it's actually a really amazing picture and thought to think that Jesus does love children and accept them. But there's actually a lot more going on in this verse and in the verses around it that we're going to look at this morning. But before we dig into the passage and look at these verses, I want to share something else uh, that I learned about that helped me to understand how Jesus teaches throughout Scripture. Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And this is what he says about Jesus' teaching. The aim of the popular teacher in Jesus' time was not to impart information, but to make a significant change in the lives of hearers. And I thought that's really different than the way that that a lot of times we teach nowadays. Usually if you go to a conference or you go to somewhere to hear a lecture, you're going to take a notebook and you're going to be writing down or maybe in your iPad or on your laptop, you're going to be taking notes about what you hear because you want to 
learn as much information as you can. But in Jesus' time, you didn't see the disciples walking around with notepads and journals and taking notes about what Jesus said. Because the way Jesus taught is that he would give stories and illustrations that would, the disciples and others would recognize, and it would cause a heart change. They would actually see, oh, wow, I've always thought it was this way, but Jesus is saying it's this way. And they would come to that crisis of belief where they had to decide, do I believe Jesus or do I believe what I've always thought was the way it's supposed to be? And so Jesus always, is always challenging his audience to think and to act differently. Let's go ahead and look at our scripture this morning. It's in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 30. And it's kind of long. It actually involves two parables and then two kind of circumstances that happen with Jesus. And there's several characters involved. But what we're going to see as we look through these verses is that there's one overarching theme that we'll come to in just a moment. So let's read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? 
Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Okay, so lots of verses. So I just want to point out some things that we see as we're looking through these verses. First of all, in the first parable, Jesus tells about there's a judge who has no interest in God. Even though the widow keeps coming to him, he won't do anything about it. He doesn't want to give her justice because he doesn't care about her. And he finally does at the end just because he doesn't want to be bothered anymore. And this judge, think of this as a complete contrast to Jesus. Jesus says at the end of this parable, will not God give justice to anyone who asks and do it quickly? There's a verse in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus says, even you that are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Won't God who is perfect give even better gifts, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so the judge in this, in this passage is just seen as someone who is completely far from God. The widow in that time, in the New Testament times, widows were looked at as being very vulnerable. They didn't have anybody to take care of them. They didn't have anybody to stand up for them. And so Jesus puts her in this parable as one crying out for justice, who doesn't have anybody else to care for her. And finally, the, the judge actually does give her justice. The next parable is about a Pharisee and a tax collector. So the Pharisee in this story is the self-righteous, proud. He's trusting in himself. And he's compare, you see he's comparing himself to others and saying, you know, I'm this, I'm that. And compared to this person, you know, they, they haven't done anything like I've done. Whereas the tax collector, he's a traitor in those times. They're guys that would work for the Roman government. And not only would they collect taxes, but they would often collect more than they were supposed to collect. So they were, they were actually thieves as well. They were corrupt. But Jesus shows this, this tax collector as being humble, as someone broken. He recognized his position before God. And so you can see, like I said before, this is where Jesus is challenging the thoughts of the people. The Pharisee in this parable is seen as the one who is wrong, and the tax collector is seen as the one who is righteous, who is doing the right thing. And then the next section is when the children come to Jesus. And children in this, um, again, in this time in the New Testament were often seen as, they, weren't just, they just weren't important. They were just off to the side. You didn't hear about children. They weren't praised and honored, maybe even like they are today. But children are more just in the background, and so we don't see much of them. So when the disciples rebuked the children for coming, that was just kind of normal. You know, most of the people would have think, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't have the children bother them. But Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not the way I think. It's different. And so he invited the children and then notice that he also said, uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And as soon as you hear that, for me, when I hear that kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, it reminds me of the Beatitudes. And the first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. And so as Jesus is talking and trying to shift the thought processes of people, the Beatitudes is another place where he went through and listed out, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. All these different things that people would think, oh, yeah, those people have it bad. But Jesus is saying, no, it's okay. They're all 
part of can can all be part of God's kingdom. Then the next section talks about the ruler who comes to Jesus. He is self-righteous. He's proud, kind of like the Pharisees, trusting in his own riches. And then the last one is the disciples. The disciples show up in two places with the children and then at the end here where Peter says, what about us? You know, we've left everything and followed you. And so those are all our characters. We'll talk about the disciples in a moment. Now, when I'm teaching children about the Bible and like how to understand the Bible, how to read it, I just tell them two things. The first question you ask is, what does this say about God? Because the whole Bible was written to us as God telling us about who he is and what he has done. It's to reveal who God is. The second question that I tell them to ask is, what does this say about me? So after we recognize what God is saying about himself, then we can look at it and say, okay, now what does God want me to do? How is this supposed to change me or what am I supposed to do about it? And so when we look at all these verses and these passages, I kind of see two overarching themes that stretch throughout the two parables, two, and then the two circumstances that Jesus finds himself in. First of all, God is the initiator of salvation. God is the one who from the beginning said, I offer salvation to you. And we are responders. So God, what he's saying about himself is that he's the initiator And what it says about us is we are the responders. We're supposed to do something about it. God offers this gift of salvation, and now what do we do? So as we look at this a little bit closer, we're going to look now just at four truths that come out of these passages. The first one is that God offers salvation to everyone. In Isaiah 55, way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 55 verse 1, God says this through the prophet Isaiah, Come, All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God is offering for us to come into his presence, to come to him at no cost to us. It's a free offer to us. Jesus affirms this later in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. He says, on the last and greatest day, Of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So this is a significant thought, or a significant shift in the thought of people at this time. Because at this time, they were looking at people like the widows, the tax collectors, uh, the children, people who they would see as sinners, people apart from God, and yet God is saying, no, this offer of salvation is for everyone. Jesus says, all who want, all who want to come can come. All who need salvation can come. Oswald Chambers said this quote, salvation is the great thought of God. And this salvation is completely from God. It was his idea from the beginning, and it's his plan. And it's his offer that comes out to everyone. I mentioned the Beatitudes a little bit earlier. In the Beatitudes, Jesus listed out all these different kind of people that are like the poor, the helpless, the ones that are mourning, that are persecuted, that are meek, that are hungry, that are hated, everyone who's excluded, all the most extreme outsiders, those are the ones that God invites for salvation. But it doesn't mean that those others aren't included. That call it also goes out to those that are rich, to those that um, 
that have been brought up in a spiritual home, the, the uh, offer of salvation is to everyone because we are all in equal need of salvation. And so that gets us to the second truth. We are in desperate need of salvation, but there's nothing we can do to earn it. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And then in the book of Titus, a letter that Paul wrote, he says this, which sums it up pretty well. Verses 3 through 7, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Both the tax collector and the rich young ruler show us this. They saw where they came from. The tax collector recognized that he was a sinful person and he needed Jesus and he threw himself at God's, threw himself before God, crying out for mercy. The rich young ruler shows us this in a different way, because he comes to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he lists off all the things that he had done. And Jesus corrects him, saying, no, 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 it's not about what you've done. You can't do enough. None of us can do enough to earn this salvation. And we see sin all around us in the world. It's not hard to convince even people that have no uh, knowledge about God, it's not hard to convince them that there is sin in the world. They look at Ukraine and they look at all the things happening in, uh, around our world, excuse me, with children being exploited and, and just the evils of war and, and everything. What's hard for people to get to understand is that each one of us has a sinful nature. It's not just the sin out there. It's not just those people that are sinning, but it's us. We all have a sin nature we were born with. And we see this with, speaking of children, when children begin to make decisions for themselves, it's not that we have to teach them to do evil. We have to teach them to do good. Okay? They're their first thought is to take what's not theirs. And their first thought is to lie about something that they have done that's wrong because they don't want to get into trouble. And so we have to teach them to do what's right. And so it's, it should be obvious to us that we all have something wrong within us, and that's sin. It's our sin nature. We have a desperate need to be saved, to become right with God, but there's nothing we can do about it. Another good example, I think, is the thief on the cross. If you remember, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a thief next to him that cried out to him and said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. That thief had done nothing in his life up to that point that would merit salvation, that would merit being able to be right with God. But at that moment, he recognized his need, and that need could only be met in Jesus' death and later his resurrection. And so... the that recognition of his sin at that point and his repentance and turning to Jesus and trusting in him is what saved him at that last moment. 
Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says, We are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. So we have to come to that point, just like that tax collector, where we just cry out for God's mercy. There's nothing we can do, there's nothing we will do, except to fall at Jesus' feet and say, you have done it all, and I trust you for my salvation. Now here comes the good news, because the third truth is that salvation can be received in faith. Many of you are familiar with Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. I'm going to open it up just so I don't stumble over it. But it's for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works that no one can boast. Our salvation is not by the works that we have done. It's not like the Pharisee who listed off all the good things he had done and all the bad things someone else had done and said, see God, I'm good. And it's not like the rich young ruler who trusted in all his obeying the commandments But it is more like the children that came to Jesus. And this is part of, I think, why Jesus said we have to become like children to come into the kingdom of God. But as you look at that, what, what are the characteristics or attitudes of children that make it a good example? Is it because they're sweet and innocent? If you have children yourselves, you probably recognize children aren't always sweet and innocent. They, uh, they sometimes get on our nerves, and they sometimes do things we wish they wouldn't. Let me give you an example. A mother was preparing pancakes for her sons. Kevin was age five, and Ryan was age three. The boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. Their mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson. If Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I will wait. Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. (laughs) And this is a lot like children, but it's a lot like us too, right? We are selfish. We often think of ourselves first before we think of somebody else. And so no, it's not because children are sweet and innocent that I think Jesus said that, but I think there are a couple of characteristics about children that Jesus wanted us to see. One of them is that children are trusting. It is not hard to get a child to trust you and to, and to follow you. And that's a lot of times, well, it's one of the big reasons that we teach our kids, don't go talk to strangers. Because children are, trust, are trusting. If someone offers them something good, they'll follow that person and they'll go with them. But children are, are also dependent. Children are dependent on their parents and others to provide everything for them. Their clothing, their food. You have to take care of them. As adults, we learn to become independent, which is good in some cases, but it can also keep us distant from God. Because to come before God, we have to be dependent. We have to tell God, I've got nothing to offer. I depend completely on you. And that is how salvation comes. In Romans chapter 4, Paul talks all about Abraham and about how Abraham believed God and how it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't about the acts that Abraham had done. And then even later in Abraham's life, God actually asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And Abraham was ready to go through with it until God stopped him and said, no, now I know that you trust me. 
Now I know that you follow me. And it's a good contrast to the rich young ruler. Jesus asked the rich young ruler a similar thing. Take all this wealth that you're dependent on and just get rid of it. Just come follow me. I'm what you need. And the rich young ruler was just kind of looking, no, I can't do that. He trusted in his riches too much to just let it go. And this leads us to our last truth about salvation, is that salvation results in transformation. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This word transformation is what's important because transformation is the mark of a follower of Jesus. You can't say that you follow Jesus if you're always doing what you want to do, if you haven't been transformed in your mind to change the way you think. There has to be transformation of your heart where you actually decide, God, it's not all about me. I'm going to follow you. There's transformation of your mind where you change your mind and you begin to think the way God wants you to think. And the, the beliefs that you had in the past, sometimes you have to put them aside because they're just not the way God wants you to believe. You have to have a transformation of your affections, meaning that you're going to start to love the things God loves. You're going to hate the things God hates. You have a transformation of your will where you decide, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And that's even as we're, we have a son that's a junior in high school now and, and thinking about college, and one of the things we talk about is, what does God want you to do with your life? What is his plan? That's what we need to be seeking. It's not what I want. It's what God wants. And that's a transformation that happens when you're a follower of Jesus. And then you have transformation of relationships. You begin to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you begin to love your neighbor as yourself. That's not something that's natural. That's something you begin that begins to happen as you're transformed by Jesus, by his Holy Spirit. And then a transformation of purpose, that your purpose in life becomes different than it was before you became a follower of Jesus. I look at the disciples in this passage as people who are continually being transformed, even in just the few verses that we read. At first, they, we saw, when we saw them, they rebuked the children. And so they were not doing or thinking the way Jesus wanted them to think. But then later, Peter brings up, but Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. So yeah, that's transformation. They completely changed from what their lifestyle was before, and now they're following Jesus. They are being transformed. And that transformation happens over your lifetime. It's not something that happens all at one time. I think it's interesting, too, in that last uh, story about the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, because Jesus says at the end of that story, it's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And at this point, all of Jesus' disciples and the people around him would have been just staring with open mouths, thinking, well, we thought if you're rich, that meant you, that God was blessing you and you were, you were where you're supposed to be. And Jesus kind of flipped that over. And so now they're kind of in shock. What do you mean a rich man can't be saved? But Jesus says... What's 
Impossible with man is possible with God. And then, as if Jesus might have known what was coming, in the next chapter, Luke 19, Jesus meets a man named Zacchaeus, who was rich, who was a tax collector, and God completely changed his life. And he repented, and he gave away, not all of his wealth, Jesus doesn't always ask us to do that, but he gave away what, God, what he felt God wanted him to give away. And so he followed what God wanted him to do. I think it's so interesting or important too to note when you're talking about like rich and poor, you know, the rich can be saved, but also poor can be saved. So should we be rich or should we be poor? Is it okay to be rich? Is it okay, or do we all need to be poor? And I think what God is saying to us is it doesn't matter. What matters is your heart. What matters is how important those riches are. You guys, we've all met people who are very maybe people that are wealthy who are very godly people, who are generous. They give and they love others and they follow Jesus with all their heart. And maybe you've met some poor people who are completely opposite. I've seen this. People that almost have nothing and yet they're greedy and they're selfish and they're angry and they're bitter. And yet I've seen the other side of that. I've seen rich people that are that, are that way, angry and bitter and greedy and poor people that are loving and generous and will give anything they have away. And so it's wrong of us to think, well, if they're rich, you know, they're following God and they're doing what they're supposed to do. If they're poor, then they need a lot of help and, and they're not following God. It's just not that easy. But God knows our heart. And so that salvation that we have must result in transformation. So as we close this morning, I just want to ask three uh, or give you three options maybe for a way that you can respond to what God has said in his word this morning. The first way that you might respond is just in repentance. Maybe you're at a point in your life where you realize, you know what, I'm not following Jesus. I haven't accepted this free offer of mercy, this free offer of salvation that God has, has given to me. I need to confess that I am a sinner. I need to confess that I do believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for me, that he rose again from the grave and that he lives, and I can now follow him. Secondly, you may be at a place where you need to respond just by worshiping. Maybe after reading these verses and just hearing about God's salvation, it just reminds you, wow, God has done so much for me. I just, I just need to worship and just spend time just thinking about what God has done for me. And then the third response is one of obedience. And I think all of us uh, need to respond in, in some way in this, uh, in this way. There's, there's always one thing that you can obey right now. Sometimes we think it's, it's a big, it's something big maybe that God wants us to do and we wait you know, what is, what did God, what do you want me to do? I'm just going to sit here and pray until, until I know what it is. And yet there are small things that God has already told you to do that you haven't obeyed. And so maybe this morning you just need to ask God, what's, what's one thing that I can obey and do right now and just show that I'm following you? Maybe it's that you, want, you need to go share what you've heard this morning with someone. Maybe there's someone either at, at home or someone, a friend that you know that maybe you'll see later today. And you can share the good news about God's offer of salvation for them. So I challenge you and I just pray that, that you would find one of those ways that you can obey today. Let's pray. God, we thank you.
so much for the offer that you have given us. It's a free offer to us, one that we can receive, but it was very costly to you, God. We recognize that this offer that you give us cost your son Jesus his life. It cost him having to come to the earth to rescue us and to die for us and go through all kinds of pain and, and difficulty. God, so we thank you. We just worship you for what you have done, for sending Jesus to us. We worship you that you are God who is active and alive, that we can seek right now, that we can, we can hear, speak to us. And so, God, I pray today that you would guide us in all that we do, that your spirit will be at work in us, transforming us, making us more like you. And we thank you for your amazing gift. Amen. <laughs>